Again, my name is Shannon. I'm the executive pastor here at Northfield. I was the children's director for years. Um, and people laugh and ask me, what, what, we don't even know what that means, executive pastor. I, I'm basically in charge of the, the staff, managing staff, and the structure of the church. So uh, with Steve's vision, um, it needs implementation. That's my job is to help put structure to Steve's vision. So um, I do joke oftentimes that uh, executive pastor is just one step closer to being an ex-pastor. Um, anyway, that's what I do for those that don't know. Um, uh, for the plan for this fall, once Steve gets back uh, at the end of September, he'll be going through the book of Malachi all the way up until our Christmas series. Uh, so he, he's, we just finished that great series in James, uh, and he's getting right back into the word going through another book, uh, which I'm looking forward to. Um, I will tell you that uh, I have some pretty severe biases. Um, I have a pride point with me that um, I love doing stuff from Scripture that's weird and different, and I hate doing stuff that everybody else does. Um, again, it's a pride point with me. Um, I, I love doing obscure things. That being said, we're going to do Psalm 23, which everybody and their brother knows everything about Psalm 23. But as I prayed about it, um, what I was going to be, be bringing to you guys and, and what God wanted to, uh, to deliver... Um, there's a lot of points to Psalm 23 that, that really stick and resonate with me. And um, I tend to have a little bit different take on things. So I hope that there's at least some nuggets in here for you that uh, you find valuable and uh, would be helpful for you. Um, if you don't mind, let's pray again, um, just for my own benefit, and then we'll get digging in. Father, you know that uh, this is not necessarily within my comfort zone. And... Uh, uh, Lord, it's easy to make this about me and, and revel in my discomfort. And yet, these are your words. And so I ask that you would move me out of the way, that uh, the truths in your scripture, the truths in Psalm 23, um, would be brought out by your spirit, that uh, would be evident to us um, and encourage us towards growth, towards healing, towards um, a closer walk with you. And... Uh, or the, the places that I've interjected myself into those, please take those things out and, and may those just be forgotten. May the truths of your word be um, the things that stick with us this morning. Uh, we lift that up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. <laughs> Thanks, I needed that. I did do one service already, which I thought went reasonably well. Nobody threw fruit or anything, so I'm pretty sure they got my best and now... You get the leftovers. I apologize. Yeah, I will say that um, that usually, like my spot is back there, my seat. I don't know. We don't have assigned seats, but you know, you've got your seat. My seat's back there, and having to sit up front where Steve sits, man, that just that, that started off on the wrong foot from the beginning. So I'm uncomfortable, um, and my goal is going to be to make you uncomfortable today as well. All right. Um, let me open this way. Imagine for a moment that you're a shepherd. It's a heavy responsibility. You've been entrusted to take care of your family's flock of sheep, not losing any to predators, hunger, thirst, or danger. Failure means ruin financially. But you also rely on your sheep for milk, for clothing, for meat, for religious sacrifice. You have to protect your family's investment. You start a journey with your sheep, near the family home in the fields where you're ha near your house, 
And as resources are eaten up, you journey to where fresh pastures are still waiting, grazing further out and higher up every day toward the hills and the open area of the region. For some shepherds, they may make a short version of that journey daily. For most, though, it's an entire season out in the environment, coaxing your sheep to ever higher elevations to get the most out of the nourishment around them. Until finally the season ends and you can return the flock to their pens where they'll be fed from the stores grown up around your home while you were gone. Imagine actually living out this as a lifestyle. The solitude you face except for willful sheep. The weight of responsibility, even as a young boy or girl. Picture this as your career path. Maybe not chosen, but the one laid out for you to take. But also imagine seeing the illustration of Scripture laid out plainly for you in daily tasks. The picture of God's leading us, us in virtually every aspect of what you do. That's the background for Psalm 23. Would you read it out with me? And I apologize now for the tiny print. Um, it is what it is. Read along with me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You all know Psalm 23. Uh, you've probably read it dozens of times, and you may even go back to it uh, on frequent occasions. It's one of the most beloved passages in Scripture, um, and it uh, offers hope and encouragement to people that are hurting. The sheep and shep- shepherd metaphor that they use, that, that David uses in Psalm 23, um, is one that is very prevalent in Scripture. It's actually used over 250 times in the Old and New Testament. Um, Just to give you an example, there's a a few verses right there that that illustrate the point. Uh, But you'll find that shepherd and sheep metaphor in Genesis, Job, Samuel, Psalm, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Matthew, John, Hebrews, Peter, and even Revelation. Um, Scholars believe that Psalm 23 was written by David. And some say that uh, it may have been written during his flight from his son Absalom when Absalom uh, tried to overthrow the throne and David had to leave and was on the run, uh, they think that he, he took the time to pen this during that time. Uh, my goal today, uh, other than making you uncomfortable, is twofold. Um, the first is to offer, and this is more on the surface level and things that are uh, fairly apparent to most of us, the comparison of God to the qualities of a shepherd. Um, in verse 1, uh, talking about the authority and responsibility that God shows and displays um, and the, his trustworthiness, his provision for us. Uh, in verse 2, uh, the knowledge and wisdom that he has and how observant he is of our condition. And in verse 3, um, we'll get through the first part of verse 3 today, um, how caring and relational that he is. So that's my first goal is we're going to touch on some of those shepherding qualities that translate to God. Uh, the second part 
is to offer a, a, another comparison, and that is that David, as he's writing this, David was a shepherd. So he's writing this not just as a common comparison that's made um, in ancient times, but firsthand knowledge of what shepherding is like and how that applies to God. So just a quick uh, little history on shepherds. Um, in the ancient world, and even in some places today, sheep were a tremendous asset. Uh, they were incredibly prevalent within the Holy Land. Uh, it was that you used sheep for wealth. Um, they were your security. Uh, they were easy to raise, easy to have graze uh, on lands that were outside of your own. Um, they used them, as I mentioned before, for milk, for meat, for clothing. All of the, the basic necessities of life came from sheep. And so uh, most of the cultures had sheep everywhere. Um, for example, uh, Job in the Bible, uh, it says that he had 14,000 sheep. That's a lot of sheep. Solomon, uh, when he dedicated the temple that he had built toward God, uh, he, they, they sacrificed 120,000 sheep in one day. Um, that's a lot of sheep. And that's a fraction of what was present within the area. I mean, that's, that's the best of the best for that 120,000. So um, sheep are everywhere. Uh, I think even today, New Zealand, uh, I believe, has more sheep than people. Um, so sheep are incredibly important. They're incredibly valuable, um, and they're incredibly valuable to even the basic farmer, the basic family. So oftentimes, because there was so much value in sheep and you could actually ruin yourself with a loss of sheep, the, the, the families, the heads of households, wouldn't shop the job of shepherd out to just anybody. Uh, you can read in scripture the difference between somebody who owns the sheep versus somebody who is only working with the sheep and the level of care that they take. So what they would do is they would have their sons, as they were raised up, would take ownership of the flock. They would become the shepherds. And as they grew in their abilities, they would then transition to other slightly more glamorous jobs in planting and, and providing crops. And then even more, um, they would move them into uh, the family business or um, uh, train them up as a warrior uh, where they would get more renown. So... I don't know if you've heard this, but um, I've often heard that, that shepherds were outcasts, uh, that they were outside of society, uh, that they were looked down upon. And that's partly true in that that job didn't have the prestige that some other jobs had. But nobody would, would uh, argue that, that the job of shepherd was vitally important to the, the makeup of the family, uh, their own livelihood. And so they didn't take that lightly. Um, and that's why it was shopped out to family members, and also why uh, it fell to David as the youngest son to be the shepherd for a time. Um, one thing that I, I want to mention about Psalm 23 um, is, is I see it in a little bit different light. Uh, so much of it is the qualities of God um, and, and how he's like a shepherd. I also see it as a, a bit of a journey. Um, we start out in uh, green fields near still waters, 
And there's a journey that happens with a shepherd, um, just as it does in real life, that they, they are taking these sheep from pastures that are close by, and as those get eaten up, they move further and further out um, until they, they oftentimes uh, find themselves on the highest hills uh, where there's these upper plains that they get to. Um, they they all are on a journey to higher ground, and some do it uh, on a, a rapid basis every day. Um, they'll make that journey up and then back down, back to their pens. But most of them, they actually will progress throughout the season up to the higher ground. So kind of as we as we do this, there's there's also that subtle uh, journey that the shepherd and sheep are on that take them to a higher place. So David was the shepherd, and he he got the call for his future leadership. So his model for leadership was shepherding, which is kind of an interesting thing. Uh, you would think that uh, if he was going to be a future king, would be considered for that, they would put him into some kind of a political apprenticeship or um, a, a way that he could gain those skills. Um, but God had him placed as a shepherd to build his leadership that he would use for his people later on. First Chronicles 11.2 shows, The Lord God said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you'll become their ruler. And Psalm 78, He chose David his servant and took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people Jacob, of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart. With skillful hands, he led them. So David's got a, a multiple perspective here. He's, he's recognizing God's shepherding through his own shepherding of sheep. And God is at the same time building in to David the leadership qualities that he needs to be a future ruler and king and be shepherd of his people. Let's push pause on that for a second because um, I'll get right back to the scriptures here in just a second. But I, I want to ask you a couple of questions. Just random questions. They're not random. They'll get to what we're talking about. But um, what do you need? If you ask that for our church staff on a Monday morning, um, we might say, man, I need coffee. Um, I oftentimes hear, I need chocolate, right? Coffee, chocolate. Um, what else do you need? What do you need? You need financial security? Do you need to get out of debt? Do you need companionship? Do you need a spouse or family that shows affection the way you want? Do you need a new car? What kind of things do you say you need? So do me a favor. This is how my mind works is... is I've got a column with a list going. Right? Things I need. And list those things there. Um, what's on that list for you? What things do you need? And let me ask my second question. We'll make another column. Column B, right next to it. What do you want? Um, what kind of things are your desires? Not necessarily a need, but things you want. Are some of those things that are in the need category, do you need to kind of reevaluate those and say, well, shoot, that new car, eh, it's more of a want, that's not a need. Um, 
that financial security. I guess that's more of a want to. What is it that you want, and how does that change that list of what you need? Third question. What does God want for you, and what does he say you need? If he had a list, his own list, column C, what would be on that? Would it be the stuff from your column A, from your list of needs? Would it be the list from column B? Mm. What does God want for you? What does he say you need? There's, there's a struggle between need and want. Um, and even asking the question, what's necessary for our survival? What do I need to survive? Even that kind of brings up, like, wow, I guess, do we even need to survive, really? Um, you know, the Sunday school answer is, well, all I need is God. And that's true, but... All right, unpause for a second. We'll come back to those questions in a minute. Finish that discussion. But let me move, move into the verses. Let's move into the scripture. Verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I want to take just a little bit of time and, and kind of go through bit by bit here. The Lord is my shepherd. Uh, again, so many times we've gone, we've gone, I've gone back to this passage and, and read it for encouragement. But in doing so, you know, it makes me feel good, but am I actually tracking with what it's saying? The Lord is my shepherd. Lord. When you say Lord, that's recognizing God's lordship, his authority, his place in the hierarchy of things resting above us. If we say, the Lord is my shepherd, we're saying right off the bat, God, I acknowledge your authority and I'm underneath of that. Steve does this, this motion, and you've probably seen it dozens of times. I'm not sure if he's explained it. It's pretty self-evident, but he does this thing where it's, yeah, come near God, but then he puts his hand up. And, and we tend to do that where we say, um, no, you're Lord. Absolutely, come near to me. I, I'm going to follow you. Whoa, whoa, wait. But not to those places that are difficult or you know, things that I don't want to do or uncomfortable. Um, and so we have this... this well, Lord, but not really Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. By saying Lord, we're proclaiming his authority over our lives. Or at least we are in word. The Lord is my shepherd. My. Um, This is something that that jumped out at me just recently in in going through this stuff again. Um, The Israelites, as a collective and most of the time in scripture, talks about God as our God, collectively. He's our God, right? He's our God, we're his people. Um, and you reside in that collective where it's kind of easy to hide somewhere in the mix. Maybe not quite in the middle, maybe not tight too close to the shepherd, but David takes it into a different place. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. And it's unusual because you don't see it this way very often, particularly in the Old Testament. The Lord is my shepherd. We own part of that relationship. And David in particular, he sought after God continually, crying out to his father. And if you read through any of the Psalms that he's written, um, you see that close personal connection that he has with the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. 
So, in that first phrase, the Lord is my shepherd, we have a choice. We either are like a compliant lamb or an unruly sheep. It's a choice we make to submit to his shepherding. And while this verse is encouraging, uh, it can also be a little convicted. Second part, I shall not want. Now, I don't know if, it was, if it's like this for you, but as a kid, man, this confused the heck out of me. Wait, the Lord's my shepherd. Why wouldn't I want him? I shall not want? Um, obviously, I shall not want is I'm not going to have a lack. He's, gonna, he's, gonna, he, he's going to take care of me. He's going to provide um, and something else that jumped out at me just recently um, that I thought was actually uh, amazing in its foresight. Um, the word want, um, the Hebrew for that um, is lo eshkar, I lack not. And um, it, it's, it's talking about that God will provide everything we need. There's no lack of what we need. And what's cool is that that's rooted in the story in Genesis 22 of Abraham and Isaac, where Abraham was called up to sacrifice his son. And at the last moment, the last possible moment, God stopped him and provided a lamb, provided a ram um, for him to sacrifice instead. And um, Abraham called the place uh, Adonai Yaram, which means the Lord will provide. And so you've got these, these two pieces of imagery here. You've got God as the shepherd who is powerful and strong and encompassing the, the, the flock and keeping them all safe. And on the other side of this phrase, you've got a picture of the sacrifice of God and the lamb that he is, still all using that framework of shepherd and sheep. I thought that was amazing. That even in David's time, that he knew the sacrifice of, of Christ to come. All right, so this discussion of I shall not want, I shall not desire anything, or I shall not have need. Um, let's go back to those questions that I asked. What do you need? What do you want? And what does God want for you? What does he say you need? Um, again, that, that Sunday school answer would be, well, I only need God. But there's a guilt that comes with that too where if, if I want something else, am I selfish? Am I prideful in wanting something other than God? Is that wrong? Does God care about our material needs or is he the only thing we need? I would say yes, he obviously cares about material needs. Um, but he has a different perspective on our need than we would. If you ask the sheep in the pasture, what do you need? Probably something to do with grass. Um, Where the shepherd, if you asked what do the sheep need, would list out a whole myriad of things um, that are necessary for the care and well-being of the flock, not just now, not just in this moment, but throughout its lifetime. That shepherd has a different perspective. He knows what our needs are, even when there's times that we don't really want what we need. Let me give you a, a quick example. Um, the year is 1987. My grandmother goes out, and uh, she doesn't like the snow. She actually doesn't even have a driver's license. 
but um, wants to be safe in the snow. So she buys a brand new Subaru wagon. Silver. Um, it's great. It's fantastic. Um, it's a really nice car. At the time, we lived nearby her. Uh, my family wasn't very well off. All we had for a family of five was pickup trucks. And uh, so when we wanted to go somewhere together, we'd cram, cram five people into the cab of a Chevy pickup. Um, we went on vacation. We were driving down to California, which we had done in a pickup truck before with five people. Um, we were all seat belted, although I don't know that I would say that it was safe. But um, she let us take the Subaru wagon, uh, a brand new Subaru wagon. Now, in reality, the thing is pretty tiny inside. It's a little tight. But for a family of five that had been riding in a pickup truck, man, that thing was fabulous. It was so cool. Um, we were living life all the way down to California. Fast forward a little bit. Um, my grandmother ended up passing away. The car was gifted to my parents. Now, they live up in the hills, and uh, they have rough winters and things, and so uh, it's got some wear and tear on it. Um, they travel quite a bit to work and back and, and school and things. Um, so it, it accumulated a lot of miles. And then about uh, seven or eight years ago, um, they bought another car, and it was kind of obsolete for their, fam- for their family over there. They just asked us, hey, do you want that car? Sure, we've got four boys. Um, we're always car poor. We'll take a car. Heck yes. Um, so the Subaru became my car. Now, when I got it, it has, a, has had a lot of wear and tear on it. It had a ton of problems. <laughs> and it just accumulated more and more and more problems. Um, it has an intermittent windshield leak that floods the passenger side um, with you know, an inch of water sometimes. And then other times it'll, it'll, it'll dampen the seat so that you get a surprise when you sit down. Sometimes it won't. There's no telling when or why that's going to happen. Um, the, uh, the electric fan for the radiator broke. And um, again, it would work intermittently, but if you were stuck in traffic anywhere, fortunately there's no traffic around here, um, <laughs> that would overheat like that. And uh, there was one time, it was actually uh, Lisa and I going out to our anniversary dinner Um, we got stuck in traffic and the radiator actually burst and sprayed coolant all over the place on our windshield and it was horrible. Um, I was driving home from uh, a church function late one night and uh, just as I got towards our house, just crossing the hill where you could see our house, uh, the rear drive shaft dropped out and fell on the ground. Um, It just had problem after problem. The power steering was going out um, and again, uh, probably within, I don't know, three or four months, you'd start to notice uh, that the power steering pump's making a little bit of noise. It would make this groaning sound as you're trying to turn it. Um, and of course, it was a little bit tougher to turn, which is why my forearms are so big. Um, anyway, it just had problem after problem. And so we were counting the days till we could get rid of it. Now, um, this isn't exactly what I had in mind for my future car when I was a teenager. I wasn't sitting around thinking, man, I hope that I get a Subaru wagon with 250,000 miles on it, man. Now, it did get me the chicks, right? Got Lisa. Um, 
Actually, she, she was before that. So, yeah. um, we can get rid of good stuff, right? Even if I don't really like it, it, it it's valuable. It's, it has worth. Um, but, you know, I'm still counting the days until I can find something different, find something new. Um, we have the, my car is parked at the top of our driveway um, by our house. And um, one dark evening, uh, it was a little bit frosty, and a gentleman, uh, one of our neighbors actually, was driving down the street. His windshield was fogged up, and he couldn't see very well, and plowed completely into the side of my car. Um, it actually drugged the car probably 15 or 20 feet um, further down the driveway and into uh, almost into the street. And, um, yeah, I, I don't even know how you do that, but he did. And my first thought is, ah, oh, crud. And then I'm like, oh, wait. <laughs> Surely this is going to put it out of its misery and give us the final step to actually go do something different, get something new. No, not, not so much. Um, the gentleman, when he hit the, the side of the car, um, it just in front of the, the, the driver's side tire, but right behind the bumper, where there's actually no mechanically functionable thing to ruin. So it smashed in the side and didn't affect anything. It didn't even push a piece of plastic into the tire or something to rub. It was just fine. <laughs> but looked a whole lot uglier. Now, there's some kids, when, when we would... Uh, um, do a wanna nights. Uh, oftentimes, I'd take home some of the, the youth volunteers uh, afterwards and drop them off at their houses. And uh, inevitably, somebody would get in for the first time and they'd be like, "Oh man, this thing's got roll-up windows. That is so cool." <laughs> I, and and the icing on the cake for this, it had a tape deck. Um, anyway, counting the days so that we could get rid of that thing and. And I, I shared this example with a, a youth group at one point um, that I was speaking to, and they got a kick out of it. But it really was a struggle for me in that that's not what I want. Um, and I could make a f fairly good case that that's not what I need either, right? I need good, solid transportation to be able to get my family around and get the kids. It, it, it just, I, I need it. I at least want it. Um, but that was something that God was working on me uh, on, that that was so much about me and my own, pers my own sheep perspective of a thing, that what I thought I needed wasn't really a need at all. The truth is, I live 10 minutes from here, and I could walk to church every day. Um, I have a perfectly good bicycle that I could bicycle to work every day. I don't need a, need a car. Um, but the, the mode of comparison that we get into when we start identifying needs is such that, that when I see everybody else have something better, which I would frequently pull into a parking lot and mention to Lisa, hey, my car is the crappiest car in this parking lot. Because <laughs> um, it was. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a point of comparison. It's, see, everybody else has something better than what I do, and that's why I need something more. And it took a long time to be over that. Now, the conclusion of the story, so you don't pity me too much, um, we were able to get rid of it actually a couple weeks ago. Um, we took it to a, uh, a wrecking yard that'll part it out, and they gave me $105 for it. <laughs> so, so we moved on. Now, I mean, there, there is a, a side of that where I was doing the right thing in that 
that's not the only car we had. We have decent cars. My wife drives a, a nice excursion, Ford Excursion. Um, great car, really reliable. Um, but I, you know, I want her to be that person. Not, I, I wouldn't hold on to that for myself and make her drive the Subaru, which I did try to do, but she just wouldn't do it. Um, so yeah, I got the Subaru all to myself. But um, you know, there is a side of that to where I, I, I knew the right things, and I could even do the right things, but I, it still was a hard place in my heart of what I need versus what I want versus what does God want? What does God... He wants me to be content with him. Um, whatever that looks like. Um, so, with my car example, um, I had to ask, is it God's intention? Is it God's plan to take all my cares and problems away? Well, no, it's not. Um, I think it's more that he wants to make me more robust and resilient and capable for the journey that I'm on. And sometimes that may be a new car and sometimes that may be walking. Let me direct you to scripture. Deuteronomy 8 says this. Um, We're talking about the journey. We're talking about the journey of the shepherd taking his sheep to a higher ground. Um, And I'm reminded of the Israelites journey to the wilderness. And he says, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Then he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you known, know that a man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciples his son, the Lord your God sorry, disciplines his son. The Lord your God disciplines you. Um, and this is the perspective I had to take with the car. Now, the car is a, a stupid thing. It's a, it's a thing. It's not that big a deal. And I know that there's, there's people that actually have much more serious material needs. Um, and so I don't make light of those things. God cares about those things. Um, but oftentimes, those, those things that are difficult for us um, as stated in Deuteronomy, they're there to humble us and, and he may let us hunger. He may let us um, learn to know or begin to learn that, that that food isn't everything, that that it's not just by bread alone. Um, but even in that, he talks about his provision for his people, that his, their clothing didn't wear out and their feet didn't swell. Now, you read through that, that, that whole cycle of, of Israel's wandering, and man, there's a lot of lousy stuff that happens. And they do a lot of complaining. Um, and sometimes I don't think that I'm that much different. But the very next passage goes on to the promise of Canaan and where he's leading them to. And his promise is that of plenty and that they are going to be well-fed, well-taken care of, um, and, and our Canaan may not be here. It might be when we're with God. And that is the paradise that we get to be with, with or paradise where those things come to us. Uh, it may not be here. And so there is a point at which I think we need to be content in our testing, content in our hunger, content in, in those things. Does God care about our physical predicaments? Absolutely. Pain, loss, 
lack of excess of wealth, lack or excess of wealth matters to him just like it does for us with our kids. We want the best for our kids, and sometimes that means learning some hard lessons. Um, And God is the same with us. He has a bigger perspective. And here's what what I'm getting at with this whole section is God's perspective is just, it's different than ours. It's It's an expanded perspective. He uses material struggles to grow and shape the things that the Holy Spirit produces in us. Patience, perseverance, love, joy, and hope. And he's not, not blind to those things, and he certainly does help us with those things, but he's got a bigger purpose and plan. What does that shepherd see that the sheep don't? And I look at the life of David, again, as the author of this, as he's writing these things. These are weighted with his own experiences. He lived at odds with enemies and even his own people for years. He was pursued from place to place to place without a solid home. And he always had a legitimate grievance. Saul's pursuit of him was completely unjustified. And God knew it, and yet it kept on. You can see it when you read through some of the Psalms, and even Psalm 22 that immediately precedes this. Um, David David's not meek and mild in this. He's not like, God, you know, I know you've got a plan, and so I'm okay with Saul chasing me down. No, he, he actually says, um, Lord, would you kill them dead and let the dogs feast on their corpses? That's pretty harsh stuff. He, he's, not, he's, he, he's legitimate in his feelings at that, mo- at that moment. He's, he's got some pretty strong thoughts about what needs to happen there. And yet, if you read through every one of the psalms that those are present in, those, those calls for justice and vindication and a change to the circumstances, he always ends on God's will. But, all of these things, I want these to happen, but, just like Christ said, your will be done. And you see that time and time again with David. And that he understands that difference between need and want that not having a lack not necess- isn't necessarily a lack of issues or a lack of struggle, um, that we can have everything we need in the midst of that. God does provide materially. We've wist- witnessed it, and we've even been part of the process, uh, process with healing and uh, providing food and housing to others to show his love. But I believe his deeper purpose lies in providing victory over sin, Redemption, salvation, and growing us in the things um, that are mentioned in the fruit of the Spirit. In the book of Jonah, um, just reading through that, I'm reminded that the same God who provided for the repentance and forgiveness of the Ninevites is also the same God that brought the fish to swallow Jonah. He's the same God that raised up the vine and then had it wither in order to stretch Jonah and take Jonah to a higher place. God just sees things a little bit different when it comes to our wants and needs. Again, that's not a point of conviction um, necessarily for us, but certainly in, in broadening our understanding of what God thinks a need is. All right, on to verse two. Man, we're moving. He makes me lie down in green pastures. 
I don't know if you're like me, um, but it seems like the last couple of years, whenever Lisa and I have gone on a trip, if we're flying out somewhere, uh, maybe we're flying out on Friday, we start on Monday. All right, make a list of the things you need. Start setting those aside. We'll do some laundry, et cetera. Get all that stuff packed. And then what happens? Thursday night at 2 a.m., or I guess it's Friday morning at 2 a.m., we're still packing stuff. Can you find this? Can you find that? I don't know. Maybe that only happens to me, but it happens a lot. Um, and that sets the whole tone for our trip. And inevitably, we're going to bed super late. You get up super early the next day to, to disembark and stuff. And um, man, by the time you get back from your trip, it feels like that was the only day you had. Um, and probably without socks. Um, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Before the shepherds would take their sheep off and embark on this journey to the higher ground, they took some time to pause and rest their sheep, knowing that there was difficulty ahead. They might encounter animals. They might encounter um, you know, beasts that are going to do damage to the, the sheep. They might have a, a lack of water. They might not have a chance to rest. So they took the time in the green fields right near their home um, where there was plenty to prepare, to get ready. And it's good to relish the safety, the plenty, the rest and calm of that place. Um, and God provides that for us. He has us rest and have peace. But that's not the end point. We've got like two extremes going on in our culture. We are either stuck in the, the, the lazy and I want this to be easy all the time phase, right? Where, man, the struggle is just getting me down. We just want it to be easy for a while. We get stuck in that place and want to stay there or we go to the other extreme and we can't stop. And it's schedule, 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 move, move, move constantly. And it's one of the ex- either one of those extremes. And there are times where God says, hey, you need to rest and not because this is the end point, but because I'm preparing you for the times that you're going to have ahead. Because we all face struggles. We know we will. I look at the life of David. And at the times he had plenty, he could appreciate it to a much higher degree because of the lack that he had. I mean, the guy was living out of caves and out of a backpack and on the road, traveling constantly with his mighty men trying to get away from Saul. But even he, when confronted with all the plenty that he had as king, even he fell victim to it in that stay and rest place um, with the story of Bathsheba, where he should have gone out with his army and instead he stayed at home. For the believer, God grants and even at times enforces periods of rest. He knows what he asks is not always easy and builds time of pause so that we can gather the strength we need to persevere. On to 2B. He leads me beside still waters. Water's a tricky thing, um, especially for animals that you're moving around with. That's your supply chain. You have to have water. You can't go more than a day or two outside of a water source if you're taking a herd somewhere. Um, you can do without food for a while. You can't go without water. Um, You're desperate for it. And yet that same water 
um, when those streams are at flood stage, uh, when um, there's a lot of material coming down, those things are, are absolutely dangerous. Um, reading uh, David's account in, in Chronicles, some of the things it talks about his mighty men doing are, are amazing. Um, these guys were crazy, you know, battling lions and um, dozens and dozens of, of enemies and things. But one of the things they list out as a feat of his mighty men is crossing a river during its flood stage because it's so treacherous that that was an amazing feat. So you've got this water issue for animals where sheep actually don't even like agitated water. Water that's moving, they want to stay away from it. They have a healthy natural fear of that. So it takes the shepherd either creating a calm source of water, like a still well, or uh, taking them to a place where the water is slow enough moving that the sheep are willing to go up to it. It's one of those things that is absolutely necessary. They're desperately needed to survive. Um, and yet there's that reminder for us that too much of a good thing can be very dangerous. So wrapping up verse 2, um, we get this image, this, this image of a beautiful picturesque landscape. And the, uh, the image we have up on the screen is actually from Margaret Smith's um, backpacking trip through Switzerland. Um, so it's kind of neat to have a, a, at least a little bit of a personal real connection with the sheep that are up there. Um, but we get this picturesque landscape. I, and I, I imagine these lush green fields with a slow-moving creek going through. It just sounds like something that I would just want to sit down in and relax. And that's what it's for. But it's not just that. It's an anticipation of a journey ahead, not just to stay and consume. Psalm 3a. He restores my soul. And the word for soul here is not just, um, it's not the spiritual sense of a soul. Um, The soul is all of you. It's, it's, It's me to the core. So he restores me. Um, we have a crazy dog at home, uh, and this dog, she does all kinds of weird stuff, but especially when she was younger, you could not let this dog off leash ever, ever, because you will not get her back. Um, you can call and call, um, and she loves us. She's a pack animal, but she she has this nose where she loves to follow what she smells, and before you know it, she is gone. And uh, there have been several times where she got out in the neighborhood and it took us hours to get her back. Uh, we went to my parents one time and they live on some secluded property that we don't have to worry about neighbors or cars running over or anything like that. And Lisa talked me into letting her off the leash. I'm like, yeah, I don't know if this is a good idea. We let her off the leash and it honestly was two hours before I could track that dog down and get her back. She just wanders. Um, it's not out of maliciousness or anything like that. It's just she moves on in that way. Um, Sheep do the same thing. They wander. It's what they do. Um, Hey, that grass is really green. Ooh, that grass is even greener. Oh, there's some long stuff over there. And before you know it, you're miles away from where your shepherd is. The The shepherd's job, one of the core responsibilities of the shepherd, is to bring restoration, bring that sheep back. He brings wayward sheep back into his presence and that flock relationship. God does the same thing. He restores us to our rightful place, even when in ignorance 
or in willful defiance. Um, He also restores the things that were lost to us. Communion with others. Joy. Hope. Even after David's most grievous sin, essentially murdering his friend, he did have to pay consequences, and yet God still restored him back into his presence. He restores my soul. He restores me. He brings us back into relationship. David had a community that pointed him towards God. He had Jonathan for a while. He had his mighty men, he, those brothers. He had uh, priests. He had prophets that pointed him back towards God. And those things were just as vital a part of who he was um, in his early shepherd, uh, as his early shepherd training. Um, God built us to be relational. I'm going to pause just for a moment and do a quick commercial break. Um, if you are on the edges of the herd, you don't feel like you're connected with others in a meaningful way. Um, I want to impress upon you our community groups. I told Steve I would plug this the next three weeks. Um, community groups are an important thing for us. And I, I've heard some fantastic stories from those of you that are in groups, um, the way that it's grown you in your relationship with others and the way that it's grown your relationship with God. Um, it, it's core to who we are as Northview, and so we would love for you to get into a community group. If you're on the fringe of the herd, if you're on the fringe of the flock, join a group. Uh, we make it really easy. If you go to our website and click on ministries and community groups, it'll take you to a listing that has all of the available groups right now. And I, uh, there's, there's a dozen or more. Um, and you can see the leaders. You can see where they're at. You can see uh, some of the demographics about it. Are they family friendly? Is it for young adults? Which group is it for? Um, and all you have to do is click on join this group. And it sets it up, puts you in connection with the group leaders. Uh, very easy. If you want a more relational method of doing that, call us at the church office and we'll get you paired up with a group uh, that's going to work for you. But we want everybody in groups for the reasons that I just discussed. Um, God is interested in bringing restoration back to us, not just for our own benefit, but, but to bring us back into community with each other. And by that, that, that same token, um, if you're not part of God's flock, if you have questions and you're not even sure, eh, I don't know about all this, I have some spiritual questions, but I'm not, I don't know if I want to be his sheep or not. Um, we have an Alpha program starting at the end of this month. And Alpha is fantastic for answering those questions and bringing you into community, into the community of believers. So I would encourage you to do one of those two things, or both. All right, now back to our regularly scheduled programming. Um, I'll call the worship team up as I uh, close here. Um, next week, we're going to jump into a whopping one and a half verses, um, 3B and 4, and we're going to talk a lot more about the ins and outs of sheep behavior. So for those of you that have been considering a career in um, shepherding, this will be right up your alley. But in, in closing, um, I just want to bring us back to David. David was one of the most famous kings ever to live, um, whether good or bad. And he didn't learn his kingship, his kingcraft from political leaders. If anything, his time with Saul was a what not to do. 
Um, He didn't learn how to be king from his father who was a king before him and brought him into it. The model he found for leadership over God's people was found in a humble sheep pasture doing messy, dirty, and smelly stuff. And while he was there doing the things that were probably not super fun and had a little bit of a stigma to him, um, he encountered his shepherd. And in that, he learned to not just, he didn't just learn about his role, but he had to, had to practice his role um, for God's purpose in those small things. He had to practice the understanding of authority, the responsibility, the caring, the perseverance. He learned to battle, and I think most importantly, he learned that fierce love for God that he put on display um, with his actions with Goliath. So to wrap up, three questions for you. Just reflecting back on David's experiences, what experience or challenge has God demonstrated his character or qualities to you through? What things have you gone through where you got to recognize who God was up front and personal? Second question, what undesirable time of life is exactly what the Lord was using to shape you? I don't know if David would have picked shepherding before he went into it. He sounds like a guy that probably would have gone for uh, head of the army kind of thing. But what undesirable time of life is exactly what God was using to shape you? And then lastly, what thing is he going to use tomorrow or next week or next year to continue to grow you? I'll conclude with this. Let us remember that he is the shepherd with the greater awareness than the sheep have. Knowing our need, our journey, and our destination, we need to continually put our trust in him. We also need to practice the model he gives us, acknowledging his authority and exercising wise authority over others, accepting correction, but also showing caring in the correction we give, allowing restoration for ourselves to community, but granting forgiveness to others to extend community to them. Thank you.